0: All right, again, good morning, and if you have your Bibles, let's turn in them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in a message entitled, What is the Rapture? What is the Rapture? And we're going to pick it up in verse 13 to verse 18. Let's take a moment to read. Paul writing to the Thessalonians, Thessalonians, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then, though, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. I'll never forget when I was a new believer in Jesus Christ, talking with this uh woman from my church, and uh you know, she was one of those back in the eighties that she still felt it was the sixties, so she was kind of one of those what I some I guess some would call affectionately a leftover hippie. And she her and I were talking and we both had a long hair, you're gonna have to imagine that for me god gives and god takes away and we were talking and it was a great conversation and and jesus was you know the center of it all and then as we were parting she said to me and i'll never forget this you know she says i will say i said to her i'll see you later and she said yeah here there or in the air and i'm like is that something hippies said so i think i (laughs) replied so i think i replied groovy uh You know, something along those lines. I had no idea in what she was referring to. No idea. But as time went on, of course, I realized that she was affectionately saying that she was waiting and in great anticipation for the return of the Lord in an event that the Bible calls the rapture of the church. And many who look back on that period of time believe that we as Christians made too much of the doctrine of the rapture of the church. But they're mistaken if they felt that way. The reason is, is because it wasn't the rapture that we were looking forward to, it was Jesus that we were looking forward to. And we lived with this incredible anticipation of the imminent return of Jesus each and every day of our Christian lives. We believed he could come back for his church at any moment. And it just moved us to worship him greater and to dig into his word and to fellowship with one another and to share Christ with anyone who would listen to the gospel. It was such a motivator for us as Christians. And I I came to really appreciate that. Because I truly believe that Jesus could come back at any time. And as a result, we lived as Christians accordingly. The rapture of the church is a significant event in the last days. Now, the rapture is different than the second coming of Jesus Christ, The physical coming of Jesus Christ spoken of in the book of Revelation chapter 19 is a significant, of course, climactic event, I should say, of the end times. His physical return. But the Bible here also promises us that Jesus will come back for his church before that will occur. And this is meant to be a great source of comfort. Whenever the rapture is taught on, whenever these verses are read, you know, I often feel that verse 18 is somewhat diminished in its, uh, in its uh, importance in the conversation. But notice that throughout First and Second Thessalonians, Paul over and over and over again says be comforted by these words. It means to be encouraged, strengthened. It means to uh, find bravery and confidence in your faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the Thessalonians were under the under impression that the day of the Lord had come. That they were in that period of time that we spoke about last week. That period of time that begins with that seven-year period uh, of uh, judgment against the world outlined for us in Daniel chapter 9. Verses 24 to 27. And then it culminates with his return in the millennial kingdom. All of that is part of the day of the Lord. A time of judgment, a time of restoration, a time of rule and authority and reign of Christ. The Thessalonians had been convinced either by a letter or by word of some sort that they were in the great day of the Lord because of the tremendous persecution that they were suffering. And so Paul fires off this letter to them, the first letter to the Thessalonian church, the church there in Thessalonica, to encourage them, to comfort them, to share with them that it wasn't so. They weren't in the day of the Lord. Reminding them, I believe, throughout First and Second Thessalonians that before the day of the Lord will come that Christ will first come for His church and take us and remove us before the wrath of God is poured out upon this world. And this is what he is alluding to when he writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15-17. through 17. He says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, now this is coming directly from God, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have fallen asleep. There also was great concern that those who died prior to this period of time that they are currently in were somehow, some way, going to miss out on the resurrection. That they were going to miss out on all that God had for them. And Paul says, Don't worry, for at the time of the rapture, those dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up at that same moment as he continues here in verse 15 he says remain until the coming of the lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or who have died for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the of the archangel with the trumpet of god and the dead in christ will rise first Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall be with the Lord. And it goes on forever. Jesus alluded to this moment. He alluded to this moment with the apostles in John chapter 14 when he stated this in John 14 verses 1 through 3, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if I, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, he says. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there." You may be also. And I firmly believe that he is referring to the rapture of the church there, and I'll explain why in just a moment. But Paul also told the Corinthians of this mystery of the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15 51 and 52. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, meaning that it hadn't been revealed through the Old Testament. We will not all sleep, or we shall not all die, is what he is saying. But we shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. At the moment of the rapture of the church, those who are alive will be caught up, caught up to heaven to meet the Lord in the air. Notice that, the, that it's very specific in its description. We know that when Jesus returns in Revelation chapter 19, He told the apostles exactly where He was going to return. To the Mount of Olives, the same place that He ascended from. But here we as Christians meet the Lord in the air. He doesn't come fully back to rest His feet once again on this earth. But we meet Him at that moment. The word that we find in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4, when Paul writes and he says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. The word there in the Greek is harpazo. To be snatched in a moment. To be taken at a moment. Together with them, those are who preceded us in death, In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, where does the word rapture come from? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. Because it certainly doesn't sound like the Greek word, harpazo. Well, actually, it's a borrowed word from the Latin Vulgate. For in the Latin Vulgate, they translated the word harpazo as rapturus where we get the word rapture from so when someone says to you well the word rapture isn't in the bible you have to ask him which language of the bible are you referring to the word trinity isn't in the bible also but we find it throughout the new testament clearly articulated in the old testament also The rapture of the church is an event that the church should look forward to. It keeps us on our toes. It's that moment where we know that the the Lord could return at any moment. I remember Christians being so concerned that they would be caught at, let's say, awkward moments. Either in the potty or in the shower. You know, I think the Lord's going to take care of that. Don't worry about it. And if we see you uh, rising in the air with toilet paper, we'll all laugh at you on the way up, okay? You know, oh, you're the one, yeah, watch, it's going to be me, you know. But there was such excitement in those years. It was so encouraging that we believe that with all of our heart. And I believe for some Christians who have come out of the 80s and the 90s with that great anticipation, and as time has gone on and the world has gotten, well, let's say worse as we have seen in our last year, we've grown somewhat discouraged. Uh, Maybe it's not going to happen. Maybe it's not going to occur in my lifetime. Well, your life is not over yet. And I'll say this right from the beginning. There is not one prophetic fulfillment that needs to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church can take place. It can happen at any moment. We could be here right now and instead of Chris closing us and having communion here together, we may be having communion in the air and Chris leading all of heaven in worship with his guitar. And I guarantee you, in the mass group of people that will be there, and as we are worshiping the Lord, we will still hear Jay cry out at the end of the song. <laughs> but that was the passion that we had. It could be at any moment, Lord. Any moment you could return. The debate comes in over when the rapture will occur. That's where the debate amongst Christians come in. Now, we obviously hold to what is called a pre-tribulation rapture position. Okay, It sounds very technical. Uh, you can use that to impress your f- friends in a theological discussion. Actually, it's technically a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial position of eschatology. And uh, it's great in Scrabble, triple letter score, if you can get the letters right. But we believe strongly that the Bible encourages us that we will be removed before the seven-year period of tribulation begins. And every position of the rapture revolves around that seven-year period of time. We believe that it's going to happen before that seven-year period of time occurs, and I'll show you why in just a moment. But let me introduce you to some of the other positions. A newer position that really came about in the last 30 years is called pre-wrath. The pre-wrath position of the uh, the tribulation uh, view of the rapture, I should say, means that before the wrath of God occurs, the rapture of the church will take place. Now that could be somewhere in the middle of the tribulation period. But I believe that the Bible clearly teaches us that the seven-year tribulation period begins in Revelation chapter 6 verse 1 with the coming of the antichrist in a faulty manner in a counterfeit manner and that is the beginning of God's judgment on the world and i believe that the church cannot be here for the arrival of the antichrist or the emergence Of the antichrist to the world stage and i'll show you why again in just a moment there are others who believe that it'll happen directly in the middle of the tribulation period this position has well uh, fallen out of favor with most scholars today they don't see the justification for it the fourth position is a post-tribulation position that God protects his church somehow through the tribulation period and then right before the return physical return of Jesus Christ we are snatched up and then we are rem- uh, brought back down with him to reign in the millennial kingdom again i believe that that is based on some scriptures and ideas that have to do with the jews more than the church And I see a distinction between the two. Though Jewish and Gentile Christians are all saved in the same way through the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul pleads with God to save his countrymen, the Jewish people. He is talking about Israel as a nationality, as a group of his, the people of his ethnic group. He is not talking about a spiritual Israel that is displayed or manifested in and through the church at that time. The tribulation period was promised to the nation of Israel back in Daniel chapter 9. And therefore, the events of chapter 6 of Revelation to chapter 19, if you will notice that all throughout those chapters, it is God's people that he is dealing with, the Jewish people, fulfilling the last of the judgment spoken about in Daniel 9, and as a result, each and every time that you see the church mentioned, we are in heaven with the Lord. You can dig that out for yourself. I encourage you to do so. But there's a fifth position, and that is that what I call the no-trib position. They don't believe the rapture is going to happen, and they also don't believe in a physical return of Jesus Christ. And I can't tell you how much I disagree with that on many levels. The anticipated physical return of Jesus Christ was a doctrine that, that the apostles and the early church held too dearly, believing that it could happen in their, mom, in, in their lifetime at any moment. So why do I believe in a pre-trib position? It all begins with 1 Thessalonians. Paul, when he went to the city of Thessalonica and spoke to the church there, Historians and scholars tell us that he spent very little time there, only about six weeks. And yet, in those six weeks, in that new believer's uh, discipleship program, if you will, he made an effort, a very, uh, a very specific effort, to teach them about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting because that's where they got stumbled up in this fraudulent letter that they apparently had received, telling them that they were in the day of the Lord. And when he begins to remind them and lay it out for them once again, if you notice the placement, if we begin with the placement of the rapture verses in verses 13 through 18 of chapter 4, it precedes the day of the Lord in chapter 5. Meaning that he's reminding them that this happens first. And then the day of the Lord shall come. Remember again, he's trying to correct them and remind them of a correct perspective of eschatology. But within chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, he wrote to them specifically and said, "...for God did not," notice this, "...appoint us to wrath." But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, again, he uses this phrase, Comfort each one, uh, each other, excuse me, and edify one another just as you also are doing. We have not been appointed to wrath. Why? Because that wrath, the wrath of God was satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross. In those hours of darkness, the wrath of God was poured out upon Christ on our behalf. And if we receive Him, if we will put our faith and trust in Him, the wrath of God has been settled with the sacrifice and confirmed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul says that in Christ... You are not appointed to wrath. That's a great place for an amen. Would you all switch to decaf this morning? Amen, right? And so if chapter 6 begins the tribulation period with the arrival of the Antichrist, then we would also be uh, subjected to the wrath of God that he pours upon all the earth at that time. And I believe that isn't so. But in his second letter to the Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he goes on again and states, Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. The gathering together to Him is a direct reference to the rapture of the church. He precedes anything that he says further with this, the knowing that the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. He's saying, now, remember what I told you. Now, he's reminding them of what he has already spoken to them while he was with them. And so he is calling on them to remember what he had shared with him when he was there. And notice again, this gathering together uh, together to him is before everything that comes next, including the rise of the lawless one. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, he says, For the mystery of the lawless, lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Paul is saying that the Antichrist cannot come to his full authority, he cannot dominate the world until the, he who is restraining him is removed. Now the question then becomes, who is he? And there's been many uh, interpretations offered of, of who he is. If you happen to be reading the New King James Bible this morning, you will see that the translators capitalized he capitalized the word he for many will say well this is the roman empire who is keeping the antichrist at bay i don't think the roman empire is around anymore to do that do you others believe that it was some other faction that was keeping the antichrist from rising to power but I believe that if you look back into church history, they interpreted it as God himself holding the Antichrist back, specifically, specifically the presence of the Holy Spirit. I believe that he is interpreted to be the Holy Spirit, specifically working in and through the church. Let us never discount the arrival of the, of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 at pentecost pretty significant things happened didn't they but the arrival of the holy spirit in that economy in in that aspect was new to the believer in jesus christ and he has been with us ever since based on the promises of jesus in the gospel of john but at the time of the rapture i believe as the church is removed so is he working in and through the church in the manner in which he is doing today. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples, for the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. The reason for that is that the Holy Spirit is working in and through us dynamically. Now the Holy Spirit will continue working in the tribulation period, but interestingly enough that when you get to Revelation 7, The 144,000, who I believe are literally Jewish people from the 12,000, from the 12 tribes of Israel, sealed. The word sealed there in the Greek is the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians to describe the sealing of us with the Holy Spirit. So I believe that those 144,000, and no, they're not Jehovah's Witnesses, they're Jewish individuals that God seals with his seal to allow them to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel during the tribulation period. The Holy Spirit appears to return to the same economy that he operated in with the within the Old Testament as he will in the tribulation period where God will individually anoint the people. Remember, David prayed that prayer that we would never think of praying when he said, After sinning, he said, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. It's because he knew that God had anointed him in such a way that he had the Holy Spirit with him. And he didn't want his sin to jeopardize that. You and I, under the finished work of Jesus Christ and the cross, his resurrection, have been given the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God will never be taken from us. But we can grieve him. We can act uh, apart from him in the sense of choosing our own will over his, but he'll, be ne- he'll never be removed from us. When you come to the book of Revelation, I believe that there's further evidence, though I believe the greatest evidence is found in First and Second Thessalonians for a pre-trib position, I also believe that in Revelation chapter three, verses 10 through 11, he promised the church in Philadelphia. He says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. And I believe that's referring to the tribulation period. Which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And then he goes on to say, behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown." Then we have this interesting illustration of John himself. John himself in Revelation chapter 4, just one chapter over after this promise to the Philadelphia church. John before seeing the events of chapter 6 through 19 is taken into heaven. And from that point in John chapter uh, I'm sorry, uh, Revelation chapter 4 verses 1 and 2, We see the church in heaven throughout the book of Revelation from that point forward. Let's read the account. In Revelation chapter 4 verses 1 and 2, After these things I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, the throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And from that point forward, you see the church in heaven. Now some will come back would say, well, aren't the saints overcome during the tribulation period? And that word saint must refer to Christians. They are. There are Christians that will uh, come to saving faith during the tribulation period and they will be subjected to the cruelty of the Antichrist and many of them will be Jewish people who come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But let us not think that saint was only a reference to the Christians in the New Testament. Daniel uses that same term for Jewish uh, people in Daniel's book. But the church itself, I believe, when the Antichrist comes to power and the only way that he can is with us removed, with the Spirit working in and through us, can rise to the power to overcome the world in which he will. Now, one scholar found a very interesting parallel. In his examination of the process of the Jewish wedding ceremony, And it's outlined, and anyone who would like a copy of this, I'd be glad to get it to you. But he saw the whole salvation process and the interaction of Jesus with the church within the Jewish wedding itself. Now, it's kind of a long and drawn-out process. It's not just one day where we rent a banquet hall, we say, I do, we go and dance the chicken dance, and then we're married, okay? I'm convinced that no one is truly married until they dance the chicken dance at the reception. But the wedding uh, uh, process uh, and ceremony of the Jewish people was a beautiful ceremony. And let me read to you one aspect of it, if I may. Let's see if this sounds familiar to you. I bet you it will. When the bridegroom's father deemed the wedding chamber ready, The bridegroom would be betrothed to his wife and then he would leave to prepare a place for her. Often it was a a room attached to his father's home. And then he would come back for her at an unannounced time. But notice how this one scholar wrote this. He said, When the bridegroom's father deemed the wedding chamber ready, so dad had to approve of the house before he, his son went back and got his wife. Listen, I'm not going to have her just living in a shack in the back. You better uh, get your act together, son, you know. And you ain't living in the basement. And when the chamber was ready, the father would tell the bridegroom that all was ready and to get his bride. The bridegroom would abduct his, bro, uh, his bride secretly like a thief at, at the night. And take her to the wedding chamber. Now, as the bridegroom approached the bride's home, he would shout and blow the shofar, the ram's horn trumpet, so that she had some uh, some warning to gather her belongings to take into the wedding chamber. If anyone is in a real marriage, you would understand that when your wife says that it's time to go, you probably got an hour left. You know. Saying goodbye, packing up the Tupperware, making sure everything is good to go, and so forth. Look at all, everybody's like, yeah, yeah. So this, the bridegroom would blow the, and shout first, hey, let's get ready. Blow the shofar so she would be prepared, and that she would have some warning to gather her belongings and take them with the wed- into the wedding chamber, and then the bridegroom and his friends would come into the bride's house and get the bride and her bridesmaid. Now, notice with me that if that's the manner in which the uh, Jewish wedding ceremony unfolds, listen to these verses again, if you will. John 14, 1 through 3, which I alluded to, I believe, refers to the rapture. See if this sounds familiar. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Sound familiar? And if I go to pre- and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Very interesting, isn't it? Also listen to the words of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 through 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus We shall always be with the Lord. How fascinating is that? That each and every time the Jewish people would celebrate the wedding of their children, God was saying to them throughout the course of the ceremony, this is the manner in which the Messiah will treat his bride. It's beautiful to consider. But as I began, let us not forget verse 18. Verse 18 is so important to our discussion today. This last year and a half has been trying to say the best. Uh, to say, say you, know, you know, say the least. If we had any doubt that we are growing closer to the return of Jesus Christ, I think that doubt has been dissipated over the last year and a half. Things in the world just don't make sense anymore, do they? You can't connect the dots like you once used to. You don't know why they're doing what they're doing, but you see what they're preparing for in the future. And as the world stage continues to be set, and as the actors begin to take their place, you know, before the curtain ever opens, the actors are already standing behind the curtain, and they're all in their position, and they're all in their place, waiting for that moment for the curtain to be drawn open. And the play to begin, and I believe that's where we are today. The stage is being set, and the curtain will be drawn soon. And the play will begin. I bring this to you, not to debate the timing of the rapture. Not to focus simply on the doctrine of the rapture. But number one, first and foremost, I bring this to you this morning that we again would be passionate About the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And feel free to say to one another after church as you are leaving, here, there, or in the air. It's not a hippie saying after all. I want to live in that passionate expectation, don't you? Knowing that at any time the Lord could return for his church. And I want to be found amongst my Father's business. But secondly, let us comfort one another with these words as Paul used these words to comfort those that were going through great persecution there in Thessalonica. Let us comfort one another saying the Lord will return for His church. The bridegroom will return. He'll return with a shout. He'll return with the blow of the horn, the trumpet. And we who are alive will be gathered together to him in the air and be with him always forevermore. The blessed hope of the rapture of the church.